Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This is Tyson Mead, and you are listening to Deeper Digs in rock so take that eddie van halen pantheon podcasts presents deeper digs in rock part of the rock and roll archaeology project music culture technology and rock and roll now on with the show. Mr. Saturday Night Special got a barrel that's blue and cold. Ain't good for nothing but put a man six feet in a hole, diggers. Christian Swain here, home in the Pantheon Podcast HQ of San Francisco. Yes, I am a little more cheerful this week. Thanks for uh, reaching out. Thanks for the cards and letters. You know, I really appreciate the support structure uh, with our diggers, uh, our fans. Um, I don't know what to say. It just, it it was really nice. I appreciate you guys um, thinking about me, uh, concerned, and, um, you know, sending uh, the notes. Um, now, like last week's episode, um, I've got a couple of things to say before we begin. Um, today, I promise I'll be quick. Uh, if you didn't hear last week's uh, uh, episode, um, here's just a quick recap. Uh, I was a witness to a mass shooting uh, at the Gilroy Garlic Festival on July 28th. My band was on stage when the shooting broke out. We fled the stage, hid underneath it, and after the longest five minutes of my life, we emerged uh, physically unharmed, but pretty shook up on an emotional and spiritual level. So I had a few things to say about that last week. I had to process the experience some, talk about it, uh, and as luck would have it, (laughs) I have a microphone. And I I got uh, into it a little bit because, you know, let's face it, this shit does not happen in a vacuum. In summary, uh, what I talked about last week, it's it's hate. It's the guns. And it's not getting better. It's getting worse. And now, for me, it's personal. Um, So, like I said, we we got a lot of feedback uh, from listeners about it. Uh, Nearly all of it was supportive. Um, And even those who disagreed with me were able to do it without being disagreeable. And I really appreciate that. Um, Real early on with Rock and Roll Archaeology, we decided the listener gets the last word. We're not going to clap back or argue right or wrong. We give the listener the last word. With one exception, and I'm going to name that one exception. 
this little rant today is for the people um, who wrote to say what we, well, I, I, I guess it's just called stick to music. I guess it's the way to put it. Why don't you just stick to talking about rock and roll? Why drag this other stuff into it? Stick to music. Um, okay. I'm going to take a deep breath and, and fight the urge to just say, oh, just go fuck yourself and listen to some other podcast. Um, although, hey, look, you know, look again, like I said last week, racists, please. I don't want to I don't want you fucking hear uh, gun nuts that can't understand the nuance and complexity of the issue. Again, go the fuck away. But most of you don't. And, and even those who didn't necessarily uh, agree with what I say, there is room to discuss. Um, don't get me wrong. But uh, and, and let me unpack this a little bit and explain why telling me stick to music is some real bad faith, dishonest bullshit. First of all, the stick to music argument, if you want to call it that, is not expressing a difference of opinion. And again, I'm fine with different views on my podcast. Hell, I actually welcome them. I actively seek them out. But stick to music doesn't mean I disagree with you. Basically, what you're saying is shut up. Yeah, it means you don't get to have an opinion. You're not qualified uh, is a variation on this theme. Stay in your lane is another one. It's what people say when they don't have any kind of legitimate argument to make. So instead of attacking the problem, they attack the person who's just pointing out the problem. There are plenty of high-profile examples of this kind of crap, unfortunately. Um, sports fans will remember the NFL player Colin Kaepernick when Cap took a knee during pregame ceremonies to protest police brutality. The backlash was fierce. Stick to sports, they said, because they wanted to make it about Cap instead of about the very real and troubling issue he was bringing up. A decade ago, the Dixie Chicks spoke out on stage in opposition to the Iraq War, and there was a ferocious backlash. They should just stick to music, was the same bad faith, non-argument people were making. There's a documentary about it. It's called Shut Up and Sing. So, you want to tell me I'm full of it, and you disagree with me. Fine, great. Email me uh, and say, I but haven't thought this through or that I'm missing something important. Oh, great. Uh, I'd love to hear it. But don't try to tell me what topics I can address or tell me to stay in my lane because uh, I got some news for you. The world is my lane. Okay, that's it. That's the rant. Uh, and really, it was very, very small group um, that uh, engaged in this kind of behavior. Uh, uh, again, most of you were nothing but positive. And I even had some good discussions uh, regarding um, the, the gun issue, the Second Amendment, and, and things like that. Uh, and that's fine. But, all right. Anyway, that's enough for this week. Let's get going here. Nugs.net is the live music app featuring over 15,000 shows from your favorite bands on demand and ad-free. You can listen to a show from last night or from 40 years ago. You can download music to listen offline and create playlists to share with your friends. 
Uh, I've spent far too many hours watching many bands I love on Nugs.net. Or sometimes I just pick a show and let it play in the background as I work on these shows for you guys. As live music fanatics like us, the folks at Nugs.net are offering our listeners a free 30-day trial. Listen for free for 30 days and cancel anytime. Visit Nugs.net slash Deeper Digs to get started. Again, Nugs.net slash Deeper Digs to get started, okay? All right, let's get into the program. We got another good one for you today. Today's guest is author Christopher McKittrick, who has written a very timely book, Can't Give It Away on 7th Avenue, The Rolling Stones, and New York City. Timely, of course, because the band is out on their first American tour in three years, and while they didn't actually play NYC this time around, they did a two-night stand just across the Hudson River in New Jersey. McKittrick's book is not only a great reference on the various Stones members' involvements in the Big Apple, but on how and why it got its maggots and then cleaned up the act, so much so that uh, the streets are so goddamn clean it reminds one more of Disneyland than anything else these days. And uh, I'm not exactly sure that's a great thing either. Mick, Keith, and the boys have had a long love affair with all things New York, having first landed at JFK Airport on June 20th, 1964. From that inauspicious moment, uh, they hadn't even had a hit in the States yet, through today's giant stadium tour, one or all of the members have played at just about every venue in the city, from gin joints to MSG to most of the surrounding stadiums, of course. Plus, all but, I believe, Charlie have lived in or around the town at one time or another. And most of their tour announcements over the last several decades have been made from the media capital of the world. Christopher McKittrick is a film and entertainment journalist, as well as an author of both fiction and nonfiction books. But this is his first foray into rock and roll. So, let's get to it. I give you Christopher McKittrick. <laughs> Thank you. 
Christopher McKittrick. Uh, welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, great, great. How are you doing today? You're you're on the East Coast, right? You're in the Big Apple uh, as we speak today, right? That is correct. Well, good, good. Then uh, that's the appropriate place to be having this discussion. Uh, your book, Can't Give It Away on 7th Avenue, The Rolling Stones in New York City. So first question, um, are the Rolling Stones still the greatest rock and roll band in the world? <laughs> uh, I think that it's if, if you want to say that they are not, you're going to have to make a very convincing case why you believe that to be so. Um, they're just kicked off their 2019 American leg of the No Filter Tour. And this is after it was already postponed because Mick Jagger had to get heart surgery. <laughs> yeah. and he's About back. replacement, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. He's back. He's doing the same Mick Jagger he's always been. And, you know, the, the engine keeps on rolling. And I can't imagine why anyone would take that crown away from them unless you had really compelling evidence to argue that some other band is worthy of that crown because it's been 50 plus years and nobody has been able to snatch that crown from them yet. Inching up on 60. Yes. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. Well, I, I guess uh, I will render my judgment after uh, August 18th when I see them uh, here in uh, in Northern California. Uh, are you going to the MetLife Stadium to uh, catch the boys? I'll actually be uh, on the West Coast at that time. Oh, so, Pasadena, um, maybe. Yep, I'm, an, I'm aiming for the Pasadena concert. Wow, that's in uh, the Rose Bowl, if I remember right. Yes. Oh, the, the, uh, you can fit 100,000 people into that place. And they keep touring bigger and bigger venues, <laughs> you know, because they're doing fewer fewer concerts than they used to. Mm -hmm. um, and you yeah. notice Yeah, that I think there's only 18 cities uh, on this tour. Is that right? And very, and very few of them got double shows. Chicago yeah. got two shows. MetLife in New York, New Jersey got two shows. Um, Canada, all of Canada only gets, only had one show and that was on the 29th. <laughs> right, right. If you notice, um, the spacing between the shows is uh, pretty dramatic to see as well. I think it's like four days between each show. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure they would also admit they're not as young as they used to be. That's true. That's true. But uh, have you seen uh, any of the clips from uh, the Chicago shows? Yeah, they're seeming good shape. Uh, yeah. There was one hiccup on stage where. Uh, oh, oh, that's right. They 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 went into uh, paint it black, I think, and they weren't supposed to do that song that night. Yeah. Yeah. It was actually the other way around. They were supposed to be playing paint it black. But Richard started playing the intro to uh street fight man yeah it, yeah. Was, it was another song and jagger was singing and you notice that he goes are, are we in the wait, right <laughs> yeah, yeah because that's what would clue them in that oh wait we're, we're you know it's, we're not in the right key that, right. that richard used a totally different guitar on <laughs> yeah. and just wasn't right uh, yeah and they stopped it and i know keith did uh own up to the mistake yeah. and they all had a good laugh it was uh, sure. it was actually a lot of fun you know it's nice to see the glimmer twins uh in such a brotherly uh moment because uh, mm. that's not always been the case with those guys absolutely and and that was that was something that i definitely explored in the book because um 
you know, a, a lot of the eighties when even ja- Jagger and Richards were living in the same city in New York city, they were not on speaking terms. And, you know, these guys lived a couple of blocks away from each other. And this was one of the lowest, if not the lowest points in their, in their professional and personal relationship. Yeah. I do think that when we get to the 1980s uh with the band it's uh it's the nadir and uh in that they may not have made it through but uh, as we shall see they <laughs> they did so the book is a bit of a love letter to uh, both the rolling stones and new york city um it kind of charts the fall and rise of the city as a background to the rise and rise and continual rise of the of the stones um but you sort of point to the 64 65 world's fair as the first signs of the ugly cracks that will envelop new york city um so i have to ask why do you think gotham began a turn for the worse uh including a bankruptcy uh, for the city at about the same moment as the stones first arrival to uh, to its shores well we also we have to take a look at what's going on in not just american culture but worldwide culture at that same time um i was just having a conversation with with uh, my cousin at one of the signings and he's uh several years younger than me and one thing he was shocked about that i have excerpts in my book of articles from new the new york times you know definitely considered a very very you know, liberal newspaper and how they wrote about hippies and homosexuals and the language that they used in the 1960s just seems like it's a totally different newspaper because it was so critical. Um, Because at that time, you know, this was the counterculture and New York being such a major city had so many of those elements of the counterculture. You have the music before the Stone, you have Stones and the Beatles arrived in the U.S. You have the 60s folk music going on in the village. And if you were at the time a New York Times reader, that's probably not the scene you were in. Um, Nowadays, of course, anything Bob Dylan does, he's in the New York Times with 15 articles and, you know. Glowingly, yes, uh, you know, our Nobel laureate uh, of rock and roll with uh, complete and utter respect. Um, But, uh, yeah, so you're you're right. Uh, The old gray lady was uh, kind of a bastion (laughs) of conservatism uh, against uh, the new rising of the counterculture. Correct. But New York, you you know, you point to that 64-65 World's Fair, which was a financial disaster, kind of as a, you know, uh, a symbol that things are going to go downhill for the city. Now, of course, it it can't be the Rolling Stones' fault. Um, They just (laughs) happened to show up at the same time. But do you think that it was the counterculture that was, you know, the beginnings of, uh, you know, the disasters of the the 1970s? I would say that's when uh, New York was at its worst. Now, now you're talking to a native Californian. And and Mm -hmm. at that time, my experience of New York was uh, the Warriors movie. So, you know, I just assumed that, you know, this was, you know, uh, an apocalyptic dystopian hell uh, escape over uh, in uh, Manhattan. Well, yeah. Yeah. And if you look at the the cultural reflections of that, you know, you mentioned the warriors, but also you have 
another post-apocalyptic. You have Escape from New York. <laughs> yeah, um, you have all of these all of these movies informing the rest of the world that New York is basically three days away from total collapse. Um, you have, of course, the famous headline when Gerald Ford, um, uh, President Ford, was uh, refused to do a loan to the city. Yeah, and drop dead. Uh, right. <laughs> yep, drop dead. Four to city, drop dead. And, uh, you know, it's such a fascinating thing to look at movies and literature f- about New York City in the late 60s, early 70s, even well into the 80s on how it's a crime ridden cesspool. And you look at it compared to depictions in the late 90s, early 2000s, certainly after the September 11th attacks, and how it became more of this grand symbol of America. And of course, there's so many other factors to involve here. If you have to look at the crime rate in New York City and how that changed over the time, um, how the city's more segregated areas change. You know, certainly Harlem is not Harlem of the 1920s anymore. It's not even Harlem of the 1950s. Brooklyn is has completely changed to the land of the hipsters. As, oh, yes. Checkland. Uh, oh, yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was fascinating for me to look at the changing face of New York City uh, culturally at the same time that the Stones themselves came as this blues cover band, really blues and early rock and roll cover band uh, that had a few originals here and there to becoming this corporate juggernaut. And I, I think the best comparison I use for it is Times Square. Because Times Square went from the rough and tumble, dirty, almost surreal jungle um, to this essentially Disneyland, you know, in the middle of Manhattan. Yeah. And it's a huge outdoor mall now. And you compare that to what the crowds looked like at a Stones concert in 69, 70, 72, and what the crowd looks like going to the concerts today. Uh, you got entire families, three generations of families going to Stones concerts now. You know, kids with the big, <laughs> with the noise canceling, not headphones, uh, ear protection. You know, going with their parents and uh, and or and grandparents. And that's something that you know is just how that culture has changed, just as New York City has changed. And to me, it's just fascinating to see the parallels. So as you entwine the band with the city, you know, it's funny that the band's um, greatest critical success uh, is tied with the city's worst period. And the, the Stones commenting on some of these uh, these changes. But I still don't get an idea um, why in the mid-60s, did it go so bad? Did it really go so bad? Or was this just the media that was uh, making hay out of nothing? Or was there this huge change uh, in transformation? And maybe this is what we were going through, a period of early post-war 1950s monoculture into a demand of equality by other portions of America. And this is all happening in a microcosm that's easy for the media to try to talk about and explain here in uh, in New York City. Yeah. And and because one thing you have to keep in mind is New York City, especially then and arguably even now, is the media capital of the world. And Things that journalists and news programs were covering very much was through the lens of New York City culture. So certainly, yes, when you have counterculture protests in the village, uh, not just about music, but about civil rights and about the Vietnam War and about – and of course that came a little later – but 
um, about all these issues that were going on in America as a whole, as a whole, it was nearly impossible for the news media to not look at it through a New York City lens. You know, there's just, as, as you pointed out, a mass change of the culture post-World War II. You know, a lot of the first children born after the war are now coming of age. The, the earliest baby boomers are, are now uh, starting to uh, get their voice, both politically, socially, in the media. And there's a mass change here. And it's certainly, I mean, countless things have been written about how the United States as a whole changed over the 60s. And New York City, being such a major part of the United States, it had to go through those changes as well. So as Londoners, the previous center of the universe before New York, (laughs) (laughs) do you think the boys felt most comfortable there in America? Uh, Hence why they became so entwined with the city. And I I just want to put this quote out that I found really interesting from your book that uh, Keith Richards gave. And it says, there was the stark thing you discover about America. It was civilized around the edges, but 50 miles inland from any major American city, whether it was New York, Chicago, L.A. or Washington, you really did go into another world. Mm. What's important to note, to tie into that quote, is that the Rolling Stones' first American tour was not a success. Right. When they came over here, certainly they had fans at uh, John F. Kennedy Airport, uh, but they were nothing like what greeted the Beatles when they came a few months earlier. The Stones had just released their first American album uh, just days before they arrived. They hadn't had a hit single yet. And most of their tour dates were not in major U.S. cities. Um, In fact, even though they landed in New York City, their tour didn't play New York City until the final two shows when they played Carnegie Hall. And of course, those shows were completely out of control. The Stones were banned from Carnegie Hall and (laughs) rock and roll concerts as a whole were banned for a year because, as been said several times, the Stones didn't play concerts. They played riots. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And so it was a very eye opening experience from this band that was working in, in London, a major, major, major world city. Uh, to come to some of the smaller cities in America and see how different it was. Their image of America was, you know, Chicago. Yeah, the Chicago Blues, chess records and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. For Charlie Watts, it was Manhattan jazz. You know, that was their image of America. And then you put these guys looking the way they do and playing the music that they do, and you start busing them through small towns in the United States. It's an eye-opening experience. It's, it's shocking. And I love that quote from Keith Richards because it really does illustrate that this idea that especially people that are not from the United States, or even if you're from the United States and from a big city, how you forget how diverse the United States is and how different different parts of the country are. I think there's more of an understanding of that globally now because of the way the media is now. It's, it's so much more diverse. But, you know, uh, there's a great joke in the classic Eddie Murphy comedy coming to America when he decides to come to the United States and they say, "Okay, so where are you going, New York or Los Angeles? Because it's almost like nothing else exists. There's nothing in between. Uh, You know, there's a lot of talk about two Americas today, but maybe there's always been two Americas. Yeah, I certainly I certainly don't think that that's something that has come out of nowhere. I mean, even when they were even when they were working on the Constitution, you had the small states versus the big states. You had the slave states versus the free state. There's always been at least two major 
differences in that sense. I mean, and of course there's more, but there's always been, at least in my opinion, as someone who's something of an amateur historian, uh, two Americas out there. And I'm, I see that the stones discovered that on their first tour. Yeah. So they come back in the fall for their second tour and things begin to change in their favor. Uh, it seems the first venue that really fits into the canon of shows, uh, in New York is the Academy of Music. Yes. So tell us a little bit about that show, which you talked about riots. I, I think that first show was mayhem uh, uh, complete. Yeah. I mean, one thing that's also kind of interesting that you have to keep in mind about these concerts when they were doing these first couple of tours, it was not uncommon for the Stones to play two or even three shows in a venue in one day. Yeah. These are these are like 20 minute, 30 minute shows. Exactly. It's more like they're playing sets. Mm. And because they're doing that, you have three times or two times as many people trying to get into the venue because they either have tickets for show one or show two. And people that came for show one did not want to leave for the show two crowd to come in. Of course. So this would be pandemonium because you have only a certain amount of time in between to clear the theater. And uh, especially uh, when I was writing about the Carnegie Hall concerts, but there was some of this as well at the Academy of Music, they had fans uh, screaming girls hiding in any conceivable place in these theaters to try to get to the next show, uh, ducking behind the snack food counter, ducking in the bathroom, locking themselves in the bathroom because they would not want to leave to go to the second show. And of course, then you got people pouring out of the door, people with tickets that are trying to get into seats where other people are already sitting in. And it's just absolute madness. And there were times, in uh, an instance with the Academy of Music, the Stones would have to come hours before the concert started and lock themselves in the building, or they wouldn't be able to get into the building because of screaming crowds outside. So once they finally did start getting those hit songs, and once they did start getting that reputation of being this sort of rougher cousins of the Beatles, they really were in danger in some of these concerts. And, you know, there, there's video footage, not so much of, of New York shows, of Stones concerts that lasted like seven or eight minutes. And yeah. then I was... And it was a riot. And they yeah. had to escape. Yeah. Uh, I don't think we've ever seen anything like that since. Uh, you know, even uh, today's K-pop bands don't uh, experience what uh, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones did uh, in that uh, that early iteration of rock and roll. Correct. And, and uh, I, I think we've also learned a thing or two about concert security since then <laughs> that, <laughs> that it's helped that again uh something that the rolling stones helped uh, uh usher in after their uh, 1969 debacle which we'll talk yes. about in a bit so i think it's also their first american tour where murray the k suggests they record time is on my side which gets them their first uk number one i think it went to number six in the u.s and that then gets them on the Ed Sullivan show. Yes. And and the Stones, uh, certainly when people think of the uh, Ed Sullivan show in the 1960s and its impact on culture, the Beatles are, of course, the first people that come to mind. Yeah. February 9th, 1964. Uh, of yeah. Course. yeah. And maybe second is The Doors because of the infamous Light Jim Morrison, yeah. uh, Girl, We Couldn't Get Much Higher in Smith. Mm -hmm. uh, but the Stones had a really dramatic impact on the Ed Sullivan show. Not surprisingly, after they played the first time, there were uh, many complaints. And Ed Sullivan actually declared in the press that the Rolling Stones would never again appear on his show, ever. They, he said, I do not support this band and, and the way the audience acted, I will never have. I think the phrase he used was, Never again will the Rolling Stones darken our portals. <laughs> and... Um, in Bill Wyman's 
amazing books about his time with the Stones. Wyman says that, on the other hand, behind the scenes, Sullivan wrote them a letter saying, yeah, I got a lot of complaints from parents, but I got twice as many letters from young people who loved your performance. And of course, the Stones appeared on Sullivan's show several times. And even their last appearance that took place uh, once McTaylor was in the band, Sullivan actually came to them, uh, I believe it was in Los Angeles, and filmed them because they were such a big draw for the show and they couldn't fit it in their New York schedule on the East Coast. So Sullivan actually came to them at that point. But of course, talking about the Stones and the Ed Sullivan show, you have to look at their most infamous appearance, which is the let's spend some time together. (laughs) Right. Right. I think that's uh, 1967. Uh, So you you do spend some time on that. The, uh, The change of lyric for let's spend the night together and then uh, Mick actually mouthing or not the word that uh, the Sullivan producers uh, wanted to replace to let's spend some time together as opposed to night together, right? Yes. That was one of the fun things about writing this book is I'm a nerd for research. I'm, I just love discovering new things. I love, uh, but even more so than that, I love finding stuff that has seemed to become established fact and then finding out through research that it's not the case. Um, And then things that become part of rock and roll legend that gets just accepted for face value is not quite true. For example, from that appearance, the let's spend some time together appearance on Ed Sullivan, uh, countless sources list that the Stones were told like three minutes before they went on camera that they had to change the lyric. Right. That's been the narrative that uh, I'm sure the band uh, was glad to put out uh, to take as least amount of responsibility as possible. Exactly. And what's funny is upon doing research and, you know, digging through microfilm and old New York City papers, uh, you find that it was already reported the day before the show aired to let parents know that the Stones are performing their new song, but they changed the lyrics, you know, just for the benefit of America, you know, the American youth. So this was already out in the press the day before. But of course, yeah, the narrative has become the more dramatic. They were told 15 seconds before camera went on, you know, uh, and, you know, uh, but that's that's rock and roll. Well, I think I think Mick uh, perpetuated that himself by telling people, oh, I didn't really say that. Uh, Yes. uh, But to your point in the in the book, and I went and looked at the video evidence myself, which is easily attainable by just about anybody these days, which was not the case um, back in the day. uh, You know, he clearly says spend some time together. Now, he he does roll his eyes and kind of make fun of the, the situation, but he does he does actually comply with the uh, requirements of the Sullivan producers. And I like that you pointed out, yeah, nowadays we can look back at it uh, because, yeah, Jagger has done many interviews. And again, whether it's to perpetuate the narrative or just faulty memories over yeah, the years, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. uh, and it just it makes it a cooler story to say, I didn't, you know, I didn't actually say that. Yeah. Um, but yes. You watch the footage. Jagger is clearly saying, well, counterculture heroes and all that. Yeah, yeah exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, you know, he says, let's spend some time together. But, you know, that's part of uh, the dissertation of the band uh, from the black hat wearing outlaws, uh, the anti-heroes of, in the uh, the early uh, British invasion to becoming corporate uh, masters of the universe. Yes. And uh, because, uh, I, you know, I was, I was speaking to someone else about this situation and 
you know, Sullivan had a long history of clashing with rock and roll bands. Of course, I, we talked about the Doors situation. Bob Dylan pulled out of an appearance when he wasn't allowed to play. I think it was John Birch Society Blues yeah. that he wanted to play. Sullivan said, you can't play it. Bob Dylan said, I'm out. And Buddy Holly and, and Ed Sullivan kind of clashed heads on several occasions. Uh, and and uh, Well, remember, he wasn't going to put Elvis on until Steve Allen. There you go. And, you know, he clearly had the power to be a star maker. Oh, yeah. And to do that, though, you had to play by his rules or – try to play by his rules if you were Jim Morrison and, and when it was live TV, you just did whatever you want. But this, I think, is a very important moment in Stone's history because it shows them looking at, you know, of course, rock and roll is both art and commerce. And you have a band making a decision, okay, we're going to change our art because we know what this spotlight can do for us. And I'm sure they're not happy about it. You can tell by Jagger's facial expressions. But it was sort of a decision the Stones had to make in order to say, do we want to have this platform? And if it does, we I guess we've got to play it by their rules. And I think that, that you can draw a line from that to the corporate behemoth that the Rolling Stones have become being sponsored by, you know, now uh, – financial planning, uh, (laughs) you know, uh, I I know that may, that sounds crazy, but I feel like that's a moment where you can draw that line where having to compromise your art for the sake of commerce. I mean, the Rolling Stones have pioneered the idea of corporate sponsorship of a tour, like, and we'll certainly get to it a little bit later, but you know, the steel wheels tour completely changed the way stadium shows were done forever. Um, and the Rolling Stones pioneered that. I think this is one of the first instances where you saw the Stones say, you know what, for the band, for for getting our single out there, maybe we should go with this. Well, I'm glad those classes at the London School of Economics paid off for me. <laughs> I think that's a good point. <laughs> so 1969 was a, a big year for the band. Uh, two of their best albums are released, Beggar's Banquet and Let It Bleed. Um, they seem to be overtaking the Beatles in popularity and cultural significance. Of course, there's disaster with Brian Jones' death uh, and then Altamont at the end of the year. But would it be fair to say this is the fulcrum year for both the Stones and the city of New York? Uh, I Yes, I, I think that's completely, uh, completely accurate. Uh, first of all, on the Stones front, this is when you could actually make the case for them being the world's greatest rock and roll band. Um, this is when they became an arena band at this point, playing multiple shows at Madison Square Garden. And being filmed, uh, which ends up being part of Gimme Shelter. Uh, yes. And to your point, I think this is the first kind of iteration of the Stones changing the concert business is the 69 yes. tour. Yes. And of course, the Madison Square Garden shows also produced a big part of their classic, perhaps one of the best live albums ever. I'll, yeah, I'll get say, your yayas you know, out. Yeah. yeah, get your yayas out. So mm-hmm. there's so much of important Stone history, and you already mentioned Gimme Shelter, that happened in 1969 that really pushed them into that level of rock and roll stardom. Because certainly, as you were talking about, the, the Beatles at this time, is they're still the Beatles, but it's getting towards the end for them. Um, a lot of the other 60s bands that were around with the Stones in the early 60s are not hanging on as well Now that you have people like Hendrix and uh, a lot of the other sort of West Coast rock and roll bands, the Woodstock ones that are really now becoming 
what the, uh, for lack of a better term, the cool music, then the, the, the new popular music at this point. Uh, and the Stones could have faded away like a lot of other mid early mid 60s bands. But in their case, this was their literally standing at the top of Madison Square Garden, you could say, and saying, you know, we are the greatest rock and roll band, uh, the world's greatest rock and roll band, staking an impressive claim on that title. Um, on the other hand, you also have to look at what's going on in the United States at this time as well. 1969, of course, there's a lot of a lot of reflection going on in 69 because it's 50 years ago this year. But of course, you have major world events like the moon landing. But in New York City, 1969, just this past weekend, there was celebrations for the Stonewall riots, right. which really was the birth of the gay rights movement. Yeah. Uh, in gay civil rights movement in the United States started in Manhattan after a, a major, major conflict between uh, the patrons of uh, the Stonewall Inn and the New York City police force. Uh, lots of important cultural events are happening in New York City that are signaling that, you know, this is not even the New York City of the 1964 World's Fair. And it's certainly not the New York City of ticker tape parades after World War II. Things are changing. And the Stones, of course, are right in the heat there. Well, I think, you know, a Stonewall is a great thing to bring up because these marginalized people that have always been in the fabric of the United States, beginning with uh, the the civil rights, and we can probably point to Brown v. Board of Education in uh, the mid-1950s as the starting point, the promise of liberalism that had started under FDR in 1933, and uh, the civil rights for African Americans, the ending of Jim Crow laws that were happening in the South, but just, just being accepted uh, in modern society. Uh, and then, uh, to your point, the gay rights movement beginning at Stonewall in 69, the women's movement, which is, uh, you know, beginning to uh, come about at the at about the same time. Um, and all of this definitely ground zero is is New York City. Correct. Correct. So this was a very exciting time for exciting and in, in some cases, even scary time for a lot of different cultural groups and the Rolling Stones once again in the thick of it. Yeah. Yeah. So I got to ask, did Brian love or loathe the city? See, that's a great question because different sources give different answers on that. Um, a close friend of his uh, wrote, you know, wrote after he had passed that Brian Jones hated New York City. It was, you know, he didn't like going there. But yet for a man who if he really did hate New York City, he certainly spent a lot of time in a place he hated. I think you say that he yeah, he was the stones who spent the most time there. Yeah. You could spend years trying to figure out Brian Jones. Uh, he's such a key, important figure to Rolling Stone, the Rolling Stones history. And, you know, the band wouldn't exist without him. Oh, of course not. Yeah. And yet by the time the Stones became the Rolling Stones that were producing their greatest work, the quote was, unquote world's greatest rock and roll band. Yes. Mm. Yes. Their their greatest work. You mentioned the two sixty nine albums. By by the time that rolled around, Brian Jones was a marginal presence at best. Of course, by by the time you know Exile on Main Street comes out, he's he's long gone. He's he's yeah. forgotten history. Oh, um, he, I, I think he only has um, one or two parts uh, on Let It Bleed uh, and just a little bit on Beggar's Banquet as well. So he is completely disengaged even before yeah. they fire him uh, here uh, a month before he uh, he passes in '69. 
there's so many contradicting things about him and, and his, and, and his place in the band. Um, I, I have an excerpt from an interview from a music magazine, uh, that he did in New York and talking about how, you know, the stones are, are in touch with all social issues and we are right there with everybody. And meanwhile, he, he's acting as if he's still the spokesperson for the band, a role that he never quite was and certainly was not in by the late 60s. And it's just a fascinating figure. I have to think that he loved New York based on my research because it, it gave him an escape from the world of the Rolling Stones. And he felt comfortable there. He had friends there. He certainly had developed an interesting relationship with Dylan, uh, Bob Dylan. I don't know if you could quite call it a friendship. Um, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. it certainly was an interesting relationship and certainly at this time, Dylan was yeah, Bob, Bob mocking him, uh, that he should quit, uh, quit the stones and join his band. Right. Yeah. Um, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. I would have to say if, if I had a guess, I would say that he, he really did love New York, but I don't think there were a lot of things that Brian Jones was sure of at that time in his life. Uh, because he certainly was totally disengaged from being a Rolling Stone, but I don't know what his next move was, and certainly he didn't live long enough, enough for us to find out. Yeah, it's certainly a tragedy that uh, we couldn't see a you know such a great multi instrumentalist that Brian was, and uh, you know an expert uh, in the blues, one of the one of the best blues players to come out of uh, of England. It would have been interesting to see where he had gone uh, solo, but they they replaced Brian with a hot new guitar player that probably fit the latter end of the '60s and beginning of the '70s better than Brian ever could, and that's Mick yes, Taylor. of course. Mick Taylor, who, um, despite his short period of time with the Rolling Stones, just has a phenomenal list of of songs that he contributed to, arguably co-wrote. Yeah, iconic uh, songs. Yeah. yeah, that's not for me to say, uh, but certainly he, he, has, he has the opinion that he never got the credit he deserved. But uh, when you start thinking of the Rolling Stones and, and, and some of the first songs that come to mind, a lot of them are Mick Taylor songs. His first concert with the band was the memorial, the High Park Memorial for Brian Jones after his death. Um, and, you know, this is one of the biggest shows the Stones ever played. And he, if, if not the biggest show at that point, uh, 250,000 um, people in Hyde yeah, Park on uh, right. July 3rd, 1969. Yeah. Correct. And that was his debut show. And that doesn't seem to happen too often uh, where you can have a, a, a guy who's already, of course, a professional musician, but come in to one of the most popular bands in the world at the biggest concert they ever played at that time. It was a remarkable debut for him. And of course, his abilities just were still to this day. He's, he's a phenomenal guitarist and fit the stones perfectly. Yeah. So the, the film Gimme Shelter about the 1969 tour and the Altamont event is released on December 6, 1970, in exactly one year to the day of the uh, Altamont uh, uh, concert and premieres at the Plaza Theater uh, in New York City, which uh, allows filmmaker Howard Smith and others to bludgeon the counterculture and point fingers at it uh, and say it is, as Howard Smith said, uh, a coda for the 60s. And then you also quote the horrible stepfather to modern conservatism, William F. Buckley, again, crowing and helping to end the counterculture movement of the 1960s. Uh, do you think uh, that's true? I think there's truth to that, because certainly the music of the 70s, the early 70s, took a rather different turn 
then uh, at least American music, I can say uh, American pop music took a very different turn after that. Um, I always find it fascinating that Woodstock is talked about, um, you know, uh, I mean, it's the 50th anniversary of Woodstock. You could and if you're a fan of music and music history, you could not miss the dozens of reflective pieces on what Woodstock means and what Woodstock meant to popular music and how it's still the festival to end all festivals. And yet I'm still surprised that Aldemont doesn't get quite the same spotlight. I understand it had a very different, uh, it was not a celebration, it was a tragedy. But yet some of the best literature, some of the best film are not celebrations, they're tragedies. And although Gimme Shelter is really the great document of those concerts, I still think that there's so many stories, uh, so many takes on that, that could still be done. And yet, of course, Woodstock gets the spotlight that it does. I always find it just kind of interesting, you know, only these two concerts, so few weeks apart, um, and yet they had such different outcomes and such different situations, uh, despite being both supposedly part of the counterculture, um, how it became cultural events that so many people can connect to. And uh, I do think it caused a major change for the Stones for a number of reasons. Um, and then as such popular music, the security, of course, as we all know, Hell's Angels were security guards for the concert in California. And it's certainly something that the Stones had to rethink. <laughs> yeah. And as we mentioned before, really, the modern idea of concert security begins after this. Yeah. Takes after this. Yeah. Um, it's not hiring a, bu- a your buddies and uh, some local uh, local uh, beefy guys. It's it's professionalism. Exactly. Exactly. It's and and it's sort of the idea that rock and roll, of course, is always going to be wild and crazy. And but there's something to be said about having measure of control, especially when you have thousands of people in one place, uh, many of them on multiple different substances. You really do have to rethink the game plan here. Or, you know, if something like what happened at Aldemont happened again at another Stones concert or happened multiple times, there's a very realistic chance that they're not going to be able to tour. Um, This was as big of an issue as them being unable to tour the U.S. in the late 60s because of a lot of the drug issues. Um, If you can't get your security working, if you can't promise safety at your concerts, well, you're going to have to have a lot of kids running away from home to go to the concerts because you're not getting anyone going to these major events. And I think of it like after the attacks on September 11th, how there were sporting events that you would see on television with just empty stadiums because there was such fear of of what of, of an attack happening there. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, and there's such fear and and uh, and again has has very little has nothing to do with the Rolling Stones itself. But I remember one of the most chilling pictures uh, to come out. Of, of course, there's horrible pictures from the September 11th attacks. But September 11th was one of the only days that the Disney parks were closed because of the security, what happened. And there's these chilling pictures of empty Main Street USA. And I, if there's no bigger symbol of American culture, in my opinion, it's it's Disneyland in, in a lot of ways, good and bad. And just kind of this chilling idea. And there were articles written about the Stones. Hey, you can't go to a Rolling Stones concert. Did you hear what happened at that one in California? And I think that that was a major turning point for the band And it really did open their eyes to a lot of things that were going on in American culture 
in concert culture, in hippie culture, counterculture, and how they would deal with that moving forward as as a band. So what do you think the film does for the Stones? Uh, that's a that's a tough question because it captures some phenomenal performances. And this is a band at... They were actually pretty good that night. Yeah, yeah. Um, the film could have easily ruined their future concert tours, in my opinion, because um, there's just this buildup of dread that happens throughout the film, especially when you know what's coming in. Yeah, once, once um, you get past the first half, which is, you know, about the excitement of the 69 tour and the Madison yeah. Square Garden pieces, once they begin to flip over to uh, the planning of uh, this debacle, yeah, you, you immediately start to go, because you know the outcome. So you're constantly going, how did you guys continue to go forward with this thing? Yeah. And what's interesting is, and for very different reasons, but there, of course, has been a lot of talk recently about the ill-fated Fire Festival. There was the, the two documentaries on that that came out, one on Netflix yeah. and one on Hulu. Mm -hmm. And I remember watching that because as you're watching it as a viewer, you're going, there's no way this concert is ever going to happen. This is a horrible idea on every level. How did someone not pull the plug on this? And that's sort of the 21st century version of Altamont I, in, in a very different way. But I had similar feelings from watching Gimme Shelter based on exactly what you said. You're just questioning, this is not a good idea. How did no one know to pull the plug on this? But, uh, I, I, you know, it's, it's something that happened. And I think the documentary both preserves a great period of time for the Stones, but also shows it could have ruined them and it nearly did in terms of touring there was a reason they they didn't rush back to tour america let's put it that way after this happened well it's not the first time nor will it be the last time <laughs> that yes. the rolling stones were in trouble and we weren't certain of their future here but you know to your point you know the narrative on woodstock has always been the same which is you know uh, peace love music it was just uh you know uh, hippie heaven uh, everything <laughs> was perfect which is not really the case you know people may do uh there was good infrastructure i've spoken to several of the artists that were there and at Altamont. And the biggest thing that, that I've gotten out was just set and setting. Let's face it, there was a lot of acid at both places. <laughs> and uh, in Woodstock, it was this beautiful bucolic field with with a lake and uh, rolling hills. And it was a nice weekend. And, uh, you know, it was summertime. Uh, and then counterpoint that to Altamont, which if you've ever been to is a freaking desert <laughs> in the middle of winter where the winds just howl. There's a reason why it's known as a wind farm today. Yeah. You know, and I also think that of course, uh, you know, victory has uh, has a million fathers, and, and you know, <laughs> defeat has none. Everybody takes credit to what they did uh, at Woodstock, and everybody points fingers at what happened at Altamont. We kind of look at Altamont uh, in the same way that uh, Akira Kurosawa does with Rashomon. Mm. It depends on your viewpoint. You know, if, if you want to add uh, Fire Island uh, and the non-stop, it's it's a bit of group think uh, the same thing with what was happening with this Altamont show. Um, you know, I think you can probably put the Iraq war in the in the same uh, category. It's just once that ball gets going, 
it's almost impossible to stop it. And of course, you know, we all can look at it with hindsight uh, and say, aha, see, uh, you should have seen this. But it's it's not really the case when you're in the thick of it. Agreed. All right. So um, 1970 and it's fun city. <laughs> let's let's tell the diggers why and how the Big Apple added another moniker, Fun City. So Fun City is uh, just this fantastic term used to describe New York at that time. And of course, the Stones used the lyric in one of their uh, their own songs. But the idea is the 1970s in New York City, especially the early 1970s, was, well, this is when a lot of the problems that had been building in the mid-60s, late 60s had been coming to a head. Um, one of the major issues going on for New York City at this time was a shrinking tax base um, to get a little economic here. A white white flight. White flight. You got it. So Long Island and Westchester and New and Northern New Jersey and Connecticut, a lot of traditionally Irish and uh, Italian and um, Polish Im- uh, white immigrants, European immigrants whose families had come to New York uh, through Ellis Island were leaving New York City. This is a time where uh, you know automobile travel and public transportation is allowing people to live outside of New York City, come to New York City, and go back home. Um, the rise of the suburbs, even more so than post-World War II. Right. And so New York City is starting to see its population shrink. And while it's shrinking, that's causing problems with the tax base. So Mayor John Lindsay at the time mentioned that he didn't see what was such a big problem with New York. And especially once there's many strikes going on, teacher strikes, garbage strikes, which is just not a good look for any city to have garbage piling up. And during a transit strike, uh, Mayor Lindsay went on radio and television and announced you know, despite what you hear, New York City is still operating, and I think it's still a fun city. Um, <laughs> and that pretty much became sort of a snarky nickname for the city. You know, yeah, garbage is piling up, and you can't get public transportation, and your kids can't go to school because there's teacher strikes, but the city's fun. So, you know, have a good time. And, of course, the Stones embraced that nickname in uh, some of their songs that came up, uh, Dancing with Mr. D, of course. So the the 19, in fact, well, since you mentioned Dancing with Mr. D, the 1973 album Goat's Head Soup is where it seems Mick really begins to use the city as his palette in the lyrics. Uh, Starfucker, uh, Heartbreaker, and as you said, Dancing with Mr. D. Uh, are these songs fair representations of the city at the time? I think Yes. It's definitely fair to say that these are a representative of that, at least that aspect of New York City. I mean, the 70, the early 70s in New York City, when all of these problems are coming to a head, even if you're outside of New York City, you're still seeing those headlines of these disastrous things, pictures of garbage piling up, as I said, being in, in major newspapers across the United States. I can't see why, how any musician that wanted to write about the city could ignore that. And of course, this is certainly when, as you mentioned, Mick Jagger started to pepper in references to New York City in many of the Stone songs. Uh, all right. So let's let's head out to Long Island for a bit here. Uh, yes. Montauk. Uh, first, the song Memory Motel and the inspiration for that. So Memory Motel, which is, of course, an album track on the Black and Blue album, but is really it, it's really a crowd favorite. I, I've, I've never met any Stones fan that does not absolutely love this song. And it's one that they have played live, but not too often and more so in, in recent years 
years it appeared. Uh, the title comes from uh, a motel in Montauk that is named Memory Motel, which is still there um, and celebrates its connection to the Rolling Stones. But from all evidence that you can find, the name was just what inspired Jagger. In fact, there's no evidence that the Stones ever went to Memory Motel. There are a lot of other places in Montauk that they hung out. One was uh, a restaurant called Changwang, um, and they stayed at uh, Andy Warhol's estate as they were practicing for this 1975 tour. So you'll hear all types of stories. And I grew up on Long Island about the Memory Motel and its connection to the Stones. Uh, my favorite that I heard, and I've actually found this in printed sources, that the Stones would hang out there every night and play pool. And on the piano in the bar, they wrote the song Wild Horses, which is impossible because <laughs> that song came out years before that they ever visited Montauk. But again, these are the stories that come up in stories about the Stones. Um, but it really is just a beautiful, dramatic song. But it seems really the only connection is they went past the motel. They saw this phrase, Memory Motel, and Mick Jagger said, that's a good title for a song about a lost love, uh, spending a lonely night together. Oh, not about the writer of You're So Vain? <laughs> That's the rumor, you know. Uh, Mick Jagger in interviews, and he doesn't quite talk about his lyrics very often. But when he does, he often gives confusing answers. And he says that it was based on a real girl, but a composite of girls. But the general consensus is he's writing about Carly Simon, who, of course, Jagger sings background vocals on her most favorite song. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then second, <laughs> the attempted assassination of Mick Jagger by the Hells Angels. Did, they, did that really happen? All sources say that it did. Um, the only sources that say it didn't are the Hells Angels themselves. But it was a story that's so wild and just kind of comedy of air. Like yeah, please comedy of relay air. the story for us here. All right. So as the Stones are staying out in Montauk, uh, which, for those who are not unfamiliar, it's at the very, very end of north, Long Island. North tip, uh, northeast tip of uh, of Long Island. Yeah, yeah, it's at the very, very, very end. Um, you know, it's the the nickname for Montauk is the end because you, <laughs> once you hit Montauk, you, you you can't go any farther. It's a it's the Atlantic Ocean, right. and uh, so the Stones are staying at at Andy Warhol's estate. And there are rumors that the Hells Angels, not happy with the press they got out of the whole Altamont situation, uh, decide that they're going to make like a D-Day Normandy landing on the beach of Andy Warhol's estate and essentially attack Mick Jagger, kill Mick Jagger. So this part is confirmed true that the Stones generally believe these rumors and set up like barbed wire beachheads on outside of the estate on the beach to stop any possible attack coming in the middle of the night, which you sometimes hear that rock and roll is like warfare. I mean, this is the first, I think, established situation where that is true, in my opinion. So, of course, never happened. Mick Jagger is still alive and well, but that's the story that comes. And it's something that's so wild. I had included in my book. Yeah, you, I think this first came out when a, uh, a well-known angel uh, had turned state's evidence. And uh, I think, uh, didn't he uh, sit before Congress? And this is where this story came out. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> so crazy. Um, so the uh, the Stones decide to make Fortress Europe on Montauk uh, yes. to thwart. I believe it was three Hell's Angels in a small boat that capsized. Uh, yes, and didn't weren't able to actually storm the beach. No, they were not able to storm the beach. 
They should have hired sailors. Uh, <laughs> all right. All right. So now the ultimate expression of the Stones' love for New York City, and that is the 1978 album Some Girls. Yes. Uh, I am not sure you can listen to that album and not think of the city. Uh, obviously, the title of your book comes from one of the album's songs. Um and I, I really want to dive in here because there is a lot happening. I think everyone would agree that this is probably the last classic album the Stones made. And I mean, uh, I, I mean, one that any reputable fan of rock and roll must have in their collection. I know Tattoo You does as well, if not better. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. But I, I really think as a whole, as a as a completed package um some girls is the last great uh, uh, stones album would you agree with that yes uh from track one to the very last one i have to say yes uh, pound for pound it's the last great one and again of course you mentioned tattoo you um which is also very very good but you're talking front and back classic no yeah exile on main street let it bleed give me shelter uh excuse me beggar's banquet um, some maybe girls. even more so, and some girls. Uh, you know, uh, those are the heavy heavyweights uh, out exactly. there, and I think Tattoo You sits in a just a little below it in a B, it, it, like their last blues uh, album, uh, Lonesome and Blue. Um, great album of blues covers, and they sounded fantastic, but. You know, it, it's not going to rise to the level of, of those uh, those four uh, albums. Absolutely. Um, so, why do you think that album just encapsulates it so well? Well, at the time, and what's so funny about the album is it's it's as we've mentioned, it's such a New York album, and I'll, and I'll get into specifics in a little bit. But it wasn't recorded in New York. No, no, it was uh, recorded in uh, Nassau, if I remember right. Yeah, completely inspired by or France. No, it was recorded in France. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I don't have it in front of me, so I'll go with that. So, <laughs> yes, but I know it was outside New York. Um, New York was still a tremendous influence on them in the writing of the album and not just lyrically, because certainly there's several in almost every song, a reference to New York. Um, Far Away Eyes, of course, has one to Bakersfield instead, yeah, which the country, the fine. country. Element. I always find fun. Um, and speaking of the different tones that the Stones could do in their song, uh, you can't help but listen to Faraway Eyes and just crack up at, at Jagger's accent. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but getting back to the New York aspect, um, this is a time where Jagger, Richards and even Wood are spending a lot of time in New York. Um, this is also a time where New York had an incredibly diverse music scene. Uh, certainly, we have the rise of disco and, yep. and Miss You comes yep. from that. Mm-hmm. You got punk. Um, what's what's interesting is is if you didn't know any better, you would assume the Stones went disco when you hear Miss You. But the rest of Some Girls doesn't sound anything like Miss You. Lies is a song that is at such a frantic pace. It could have been respectable. Or by the Dead Boys or something like that. Yeah, yeah. These are all songs that could be punk songs. Yeah. And then you have shattered which is almost like new wave before new wave was even new wave you know <laughs> and uh but like kind of that proto punk slash new wave sound um and then you have just these lovely ballads like beast of burden and their version of um uh just my imagination and and of course i talk about far away eyes that doesn't sound like anything that came out of new york um but a lot of the songs reflect the music of what was going on in New York City at the time. And Jagger, Richards, and Wood were very aware of that music. They were spending a lot of time in New York at that point. In fact, uh, throughout the 80s, 
since you know some girl's 79 uh there's the stories of jagger and richards and wood being just popping into a club and jumping on stage with who's ever performing and you know you're talking about clubs that had 300 200 people and here's some of the biggest rock stars in the world jumping in and participating in this music scene. And we certainly had the beginnings of that. Um, Studio 54, of course, tremendous influence on the Stones. Everyone always knows Jagger spent a lot of time there, but believe it or not, so did Richards. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's where he met Patty Hansen, his, right. his, his, his future wife. Mm-hmm. So the diversity of music going on in New York City just tremendously influenced the Stones at that time. And that tied in also with the way that they marketed the album. The Stones made their one and only appearance as a group on Saturday Night Live for the Some Girls album. Um, and it is notoriously one of the band's worst televised performances because Jagger's voice is shot. Richards could barely stand up. Too much partying with Belushi is the rumor. Well, at that point, he is deep in his heroin addiction. Absolutely. Uh, Wood Wood is also having... uh, His issues. Right. Yeah. You could tell he's having a good time, but it's almost like this punk band wandered off the streets of New York and played three songs for Saturday Night Live. And it's just sort of like the best possible train wreck, I think you you could describe, because they're not in good form. But as we know with rock and roll, sometimes that produces... Doesn't matter. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. And then when they toured on the back of the album, uh, they bounced around in venues of different size. They actually played uh, in New York. The only New York appearance they played was the Palladium, which actually used to be the Academy of Music. And this is a band that had done multiple nights at Madison Square Garden. And here they're on their Some Girls tour, and for whatever reason, they decide to do smaller venues. And, uh, and, and that's not the case for every market, but they played uh, in Passaic, New Jersey, another small theater. They played uh, this, uh, this small theater in New York. But it's a record that's really close to the streets of New York City, of, of the, the music that's going on in the city. And I think that might have influenced them to play the smaller venues as opposed to playing Madison Square Garden. At least that's just my theory. I think it's a good theory and a, a chance for them to um, feel a, a different stage again. I mean, uh, you know, uh, I can imagine just being on those huge stadium tours. Uh, you know, you obviously lose a sense of intimacy, although I still believe the Rolling Stones are one of the only bands that can capture as close to that as possible in a stadium. I've never seen any other band be able to uh, to do it as well as they uh, have consistently been able to to achieve that in a, in a stadium. I'll bring up a couple of reasons why I think that is in a bit. But uh, before we leave Saturday Night Live, that October 6, 78 appearance, um, who was the host again? Uh, well, it's actually a funny thing. So the Stones were technically the host, but Mayor Ed Koch, <laughs> right. uh, you know, probably the, one of the more famous mayors in New York City history, actually was sort of the host of the episode. He came out, did a little spiel um, and then and then left. But really, it was the Stones who were host and performers. And so they appeared in several skits. Um, Richards was supposed to appear in a skit, but was not in uh, any shape to have done so. Uh, But yes, they were actually both the host and the performer. And they performed three songs, which even to Uh, this- uh, Highly unusual, yeah. Yeah, highly unusual. But this was the Rolling Stones. Yeah, yeah. All right, so the follow-up. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, So I got to ask, I'm guessing you've counted them up. How many of the New York City's venues have they played at? 
oh, geez, I don't have the count off the top of my head. But if you just run down the ones that they have done as a group, forgetting all the solo work, uh, you have every major venue. I mean, we're talking about venues that for years uh, have not existed. We got everything from Carnegie Hall, which everyone you know thinks of as the stage of classical music. But uh, this summer, they'll be playing MetLife Stadium, which is the, uh, of course, across the river in New Jersey, but considered the New York metropolitan area uh, that they'll be playing. I think some of the surprising ones is, is that the band in their solo groups have played nearly every venue. Even Bill Wyman, who who very rarely leaves England, his solo group, the the Rhythm Kings, played a show at uh, Town Hall in New York City. Almost all of the members, Richards, Jagger, actually Richards, Jagger, Wood, and Watts have all played with their solo bands at Webster Hall, which is a a smaller theater down in Manhattan. Um, When they played their 50th anniversary tour, they did the brand new at the time Barclays Center. They've played Madison Square. They were the first band inducted in the Madison Square Garden Hall of Fame just because of the sheer amount of times they played, since surpassed by other bands, most notably the Grateful Dead. But the Stones, uh, you know, this is my long way of saying I don't have an exact count. I'm just naming all the ones that are coming to mind. (laughs) But if you name a venue, there's they probably played at least one uh, of them has been there. Yeah, a stone has played there, (laughs) which you cannot say for any other city in the world. Mm-hmm. So uh, the follow up to some girls was emotional rescue. And, and I think this is where Mick and Keith really begin to fray uh, that will cause a lot of friction throughout the 80s. And the funny thing is, is that as you get into the, the Rolling Stones history, and I'm sure you're, you're going to agree with this, it's really because Keith Richards gets sober. Yes. That seems like a weird reason to cause a problem. Well, one of the things, and and, uh, and Keith Richards has has used "Beast of Burden" as a symbol for this. He, he talks about in his in his autobiography that life, uh, life right? Yeah, life. Uh, that when he was late seventies, this is Keith Richards when he is at his most addicted, not well. You know, we we always talk that Keith Richards is going to live forever, but if there was a time that he was going to go out, this was it, right? And while he was involved in all this. Um, Jagger took a stronger role in the band and because Keith Richards was not there and he was, he he was not of the right mind. He was not ready to contribute. So when Richards does get clean or as clean as Keith Richards gets, I I should say, uh, and, and, and comes back and says, okay, you carried the ball. I'm ready to come back and, and contribute, you know, the Jagger Richards partnership. Let's get back to how it used to. And, and Jagger, uh, you know, from all reports, was saying, "Wait, wait a second, you're the one that that started to drift away, and and now you want to come back and contribute like you used to." But you know, I'm the one that's been carrying the weight here. I've been, you know, and that's why they use the Beast of Burden song as as the reference. I've been the one that's been carrying the weight here, and you now you're ready to contribute, and it definitely caused a lot of issues, and and you can build that into how that led to Jagger signing a solo record deal yeah. uh, later on in the eighties and how much that hurt Richards personally. And, uh, and of course we can talk more and more about that. We will. <laughs> so, uh, at this time they're now getting into their forties. 
Yes. Uh, and, um, you know, you look at life differently than you, you do in your, your 20s and 30s. Mick Jagger, I think, has proved himself a, a brilliant businessman over the years. Yes. And as we've already started to say, uh, the Stones themselves have begun to become more than just a rock and roll band. And probably a lot of this has to do with Mick uh, being in charge and Keith not there to, you know, have that other side of the fulcrum to hold weight, uh, which may be part of, of how this happens. And then, you know, uh, when you get in your 40s and you now are the master of, uh, of the universe of this particular corporation, um, the founder comes back and says, oh, hey, I'm ready to take the reins. I can imagine that that's probably a little frustrating as well. Lucky for all of us, you know, Mick does uh, take it out on trying to develop a solo career, which doesn't really go anywhere. No. Um, so one of the major criticisms that come up at this time between the Glimmer Twins is that Richard sees, and he talked about this in countless interviews and talked about it in his biography, um, Mick very much wanting to become uh, an MTV star. At this time, you know, it's after Emotional Rescue, we got Tattoo You, and we have the launch of MTV, which... Well, it, it ended up being the future of music. I mean, if you, yeah, you know, that killed, that killed off a lot of 70s bands. Exactly. Uh, and changed music forever. Yes. And, uh, or at least the music industry um, forever as well. And Mick Jagger is seeing the success of Michael Jackson and Prince and all of these really flashy pop stars. And Mick Jagger being the ultimate frontman, being the, the guy most people think of when they think of rock and roll frontmen, um, this is starting to look pretty good to him. And I think one of my favorite all-time Keith Richards quotes, and that's, that's a big thing to say because he has so many great ones, <laughs> is if you're Mick Jagger – why would you ever want to be anyone else? Um, and so Mick is going for a more poppy sound on his solo work, um, taking time away and effort away from Stone's projects, especially when you get to the 1986 album, Dirty Work. You're seeing a band that's not on the same page. I wouldn't even say they're in the same book. Um, the writing credits on that album tell the story. There's a handful of Jagger Richards songs. Uh, Wood actually gets writing credit on some songs. And then there's covers and other contributors, something that the Stones really never really did um, up until that point, have other songwriters involved in, in, in writing or other, uh, other musicians involved in writing the music. But what came out of it in, in a good sense is we got Keith Richards solo albums out of it because – Richards looked at what Jagger was doing and, hey, if he's going to do solo albums. I guess I got it. Right. I guess I'm going to do it. And uh, what you find interesting, and, and I put a lot of these in the book because a lot of the music press, you know, is out of New York. And just the phenomenal reviews that Keith Richards' albums got versus Mick Jagger's albums. And even the reviewers couldn't help but pit the two of them together. Because at the same time, you know, we're talking about late, uh, mid to late 80s, Jagger and Richards are swiping at each other in the press. Uh, for all intents and purposes, the Stones are broken up. They just haven't officially made an announcement at this point. Um, they are not on the same page. They hadn't toured in, in years. They hadn't performed together in years. So there's a lot going on there. And it's a very interesting time because, as I, I mentioned earlier in the interview, uh, earlier in this podcast, that Richards and Jagger both live in New York City. They're so close to each other at this point in time, and yet they couldn't be farther apart professionally. Um, 
But of course, that brings into the next phase of the Stones career, uh, and that's the the big reunion with the Steel Wheels album and tour. Before we get to that, I do, and I'm glad you brought that up because I, I want to look at the beginning and the end of the decade. Because in 1981, the band begins to reinvent the concert world again yes. with the album and tour Tattoo You. Unlike 1969's tour, where the modern uh, tour was partially invented, this is scaling new heights in presentation and sponsorship. And I think they made $52 million in 50 shows, which was a huge record at the time. Yeah, completely unheard of. And so this is when they're playing stadiums. Um, Multiple stages, I think. They've got two rigs that are going from various uh, stadiums uh, at the same time. Is that right? Yep. And they're starting to lean into more of the greatest hits presentation of the concerts. Right. Sponsorship. I think it was uh, a men's cologne was the sponsor of uh, the 81 tour. Yes. Yeah. It's changing the game for not mm-hmm. just the Stones, but the entire concert industry. Yeah. Um, so people pick that up uh, and run with it throughout the 80s. And then in 1989, uh, the Glimmer Twins have uh, buried the hatchet, luckily not in each other's head. And, uh, you know, as we, we talked about the 81 tour, well, where the band begins to change from rock and roll group to international brand. Now with Steel Wheels, they begin to be on par with somebody like Coca-Cola. And to drive that home, let's discuss those four shows at Shea Stadium. Um, actually, it turned out being six shows once they got down to it because uh, they came back for two more. But yes, what happened with the Steel Wheels tours is this is the stadium tour to this day still rewrote the rule book on stadium tours because, again, they had multiple rigs touring the country. I was going to say the country, but really the world. But they also created a stage presentation that was just unbelievably massive. Yeah, um, I, I was at the show. It was unbelievable. Uh, right. And, yeah. Constantly changing. Huge wall. This is a little bit before a lot of the video there. There was video screens, if I remember right. But it was more about uh, the special effects that uh, were put on uh, during the show. Right. And it's hard not to draw the comparison uh, to the famous Beatles concerts at Shea Stadium to the Stones 25 years later doing the same thing, because the, the obviously the Beatles playing Shea Stadium was one of the most important moments in rock and roll history, at least for both not just the Beatles, but it's a concert that people are still talking about. It's historic place in rock and roll history. But as has been said many times, the Beatles couldn't hear themselves. Amplification was lousy. Nobody could really hear what was going on with all the screaming. As big of a success as it was symbolically, it was not a, uh, a great presentation, to say the least. Fast forward that to 25 years later when the Stones are saying, if someone's going to come to our concert tour and sit in the second to last row all the way at the top of the stadium, how can we give them a show? That's going to be as maybe not as impactful as being in the front row, but at least bring them into the house. Exactly. Not make them feel like they're on a mountain outside of the stadium. So the stones and and a lot of this comes down to Jagger gets very involved with the stage design, as does Watts. Um, Thinking about how we can create a presentation that will pull into the crowd. Um, But what they also had behind themselves, as you mentioned, was the marketing of the brand. The Stones didn't just decide to sell concert T-shirts and merchandise at the shows. 
they sold them in department stores. So even if you weren't going to the concerts, you could still get tour merchandise at the store, at Sears, you know, and and wear that to uh, in anticipation of the shows. It built up the anticipation, the popularity. It became a must-see event. And that's how they were able to play so many huge shows uh, and multiple venues well, multiple shows in the same venues. I mean, you're talking about stadium audiences coming to the same stadium four, five, six times to see the Stones concert. It became a must-see presentation. And part of that had to do with, again, the merchandising, the branding. And what's even more impressive is this also kind of started the Stones on the path of learning. Well, after we finished the tour, how do we make even more money off of it. And we start seeing concert films and live albums after every tour. Uh, and the Stones realize that if we present our tours as must-see, can't-miss events and market them that way, we can sell more tickets than any other band has ever sold in the history of the world and make more money on concert tours. than. And the Stones constantly were breaking their own record for the next several tour cycles for highest grossing tour of all time. Yeah. Now, of course, they were doing like, a, I think, a hundred and some odd dates uh, yeah. with each of these of which they, they can't possibly do uh, today. Uh, although they're still able to play in these large venues, which not too many people can do. Um, I, I think very, very few uh, pop stars today are able to put on anything even remotely what uh, what the Rolling Stones were able to do in their heyday, not not, not with the number of shows uh, that uh, they were able to put on in a in a tour in their in their their prime. Agreed. So it was six shows at Shea Stadium and over three hundred and fifty thousand tickets were sold, bringing in twelve million dollars. Is that right? Yes, that's crazy. So, you know, I ask these questions because let's face it, you're you're making a, a correlation with the band and the city. And if nothing else, New York it's the capital of capitalism and Correct. the stones seem to be learning lessons directly from wall street. Um, you know, you have a quote from Mick in the book. It took us 20 years of doing shows and I won't do my Mick Jagger impersonation. It <laughs> took us 20 years of doing shows before we actually put on these stadium concerts. It'll be interesting to see if any of these bands today ever do the kind of shows we're doing. I don't I don't think they will because they don't seem to be that interested in it. You have to be really interested in showbiz to do this. You have to be interested in theater. Otherwise, no point doing it. It's only interesting if you're in control of it. And to be in control of it, you have to initiate it. I wonder if there's anybody that's going to do that. And I think that's a great quote because what it does say, again, uh, you know, uh, not, New York is also the capital of theater. And what you have are these extravaganzas that are reminiscent of, of a musical, uh, especially uh, in the 80s, something like The Phantom, which, uh, you know, was giant uh, at that time. And the only other spectacle uh, that might be put in, in that category is um, Pink Floyd's The Wall from 1980, which, of course, only ran 21 dates. Uh, this you're doing hundreds of times all over the world with multiple crews moving to multiple cities uh, at the same time. So this is more like a conquering army than anything else. Absolutely. And I do agree that there are few pop stars that have figured it out 
to the, I, well, I don't know if anyone's figured out to the degree, degree that the Stones have, but there no, are a few. I, that, I just don't think so. I think, yeah. you know, the Beyonce uh, tour a couple of years ago was similar in, in scope and scale, but um, I, I just don't think they were as internationally yeah. in the same league as the Stones were. Absolutely. And you certainly have pop stars that know how to mix being theatrical and music, uh, you know, certainly. Yeah. Lady like, Gaga. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, of the cultural magnitude of the Rolling Stones, I, I mean, you also have to remember the Stones came out of a time in music where you didn't have thousands of Spotify channels to find exactly what you want to listen to. And we've seen this with countless, you know, not just music, but also in television. You know, as the culture is fractured uh, and we have a more subcultures than you could even imagine that, uh, you know, there's there's very few bands that tie an entire generation and in Stone's case, multiple generations together like the Rolling Stones. Uh, all right. All right. So you mentioned that, you know, in that 89 tour, it's not just the actual tour itself. It's it's all the merchandising that uh, that goes along with it. And then extending that by um, usually some concert film event. So of all the Rolling Stones concert films, which is your favorite and why? Uh, my absolute favorite is Shine a Light. Of course. Uh, <laughs> Beacon Theater, Martin Scorsese, right. <laughs> yeah, and I think, uh, you know, Scorsese has proven himself to be a master at music documentaries. Uh, and uh, even just uh, put one out on Netflix about the Rolling Thunder Review, yeah. which is part yeah. documentary, part a fantasy. Our fantasy, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, th- you know that's fun just to figure out uh, uh, what's real, what's and what's real, not. or what's not. And, and again, <laughs> that's Bob Dylan as Bob Dylan. That's Bob. Yeah. Right, uh, right. And uh, I think that's the closest we've actually gotten to Bob Dylan, if you ask me. And I, I think it was an incredible opportunity for the Stones to do a small venue show. And they did dig out quite a bit of songs that they don't normally play. Not that they never played. They just don't normally play. Um, It gets close to the band in a way that few other filmmakers have been allowed to. In fact, uh, Jagger has notoriously complained that he dislikes the number of close-ups that are in Shine a Light. Um, (laughs) uh, But they gave Scorsese the opportunity to do that. And I don't think most of the other filmmakers who work on Stone's concert films, especially the ones that the band have full control over, quite kind of penetrate a Stone's concert the way that Shine a Light does. Yeah, I, I also like the the way that uh, Scorsese raises the volume of the instrument that he's focused on. Uh, as he pans into Keith Richards, the, his guitar volume seems to come up just a little in the mix to kind of make you realize, oh, this is exactly what he's playing. Uh, and the same thing with the other guys. I can see where Mick would uh, maybe um, be a, a little upset about the close-ups being of a, of a certain age. But... Um, you know, we are who we are, and I don't think that it affected uh, the performance of the film. And I think that's a really good one. Me personally, I, I love the uh, Havana Moon Latin American tour film. And the mm-hmm. reason I, I do is because when I saw it, when they got to Havana, which had not experienced anything like this, being isolated for 50-plus uh, years, it made me realize how important this music really is and that 
when when you give it to people who haven't had it, there is this unmitigated joy and celebration that goes on. So, but if I had to pick um, uh, the second one, it would it would definitely be uh, Shine a Light. Yeah, and uh, w- one of the things I, I think is always funny is is you know Scorsese is a fan of the Stones because he has constantly used their, oh, music. In, their in the in his films, right? Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and it's a great effect. That, yes. Yeah, yeah, it's a great effect, and of course he's used Gimme Shelter multiple times. Which I find, you know, just humorous that Gimme Shelter is not in Shine a Light out of all, you know, <laughs> you know, right. uh, out of all song, songs right. you would expect to appear in a Scorsese Stones movie. It's the one that doesn't. But yeah. that's, you know, Jagger loves playing with the set list. So, that, oh, which is a, which is a big fun part of the opening of the of that movie yes. is, uh, you know, where's the set list? Where's the set list? I, I need yeah. the set list. I need the set list. Uh, you know, and then they they kind of play that up. I thought that was really brilliant. Mm-hmm. All right. So in the 1990s, the old New York of shattered is being replaced the last few times that i've been to manhattan and and we've kind of hit on this it 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 reminds me of disneyland and it's not just Times square anymore uh the charm seems manufactured and everywhere is perfectly safe uh it's been uh beatified if you will um how do you like it have you seen the change is manhattan anything like it was do you miss things you know maybe maybe that's why the rolling stones haven't made a classic album since some girls yeah i mean it's it's sort of interesting because as time has gone by people's perception and especially people who visit new york they're not from new york they look at the way the city is now and sort of assume it's been that way forever and uh, for example, my wife is originally from Pennsylvania, and I tried ex- – one time I was explaining to her, she's very much into musicals, huge Broadway fan, and I was uh, explaining to her, I said, you know, when I was growing up, Times Square was not the place you wanted to go. And, and I explained to her, I said, you know, a lot of the theaters you go to now were either shut down or they were porno theaters or they were a grindhouse theater or – and she just couldn't wrap her head around that. She was she was shocked. And and of course, now she realizes that that's true. But uh, New York has done a great job of sanitizing its image and history in, in a way that I don't think any other city has done. With that said, there's certain greatness that can be born out of chaos. Some of the greatest music in New York City history were produced in the 70s when the city was, you know, at some of its lowest points. We talk about some of the greatest sports moments in New York City history, some of the greatest literature that was written in New York was written in a lot of the 50s, 60s, 70s, and even in the 80s when certain areas of the city, such as um, we have the the AIDS crisis going on in the city, how much amazing material was produced culturally from that chaos, from those issues, um, from those troubles. And I'm certainly uh, the Stones have been inspired by New York City, uh, and and yet you cannot hear the New York influence as strongly on any of their more recent albums. And certainly you can argue that they're a different band than they were in 1979, and they're writing albums for different reasons. You know, are they writing albums because they love to play music? Well, yes, on some level. Uh, Keith Richards always talks about how he constantly just wants to record new music. But on the other hand, uh, it's it's almost like the Stones are are writing albums as an excuse to create a tour afterwards. Um, and in fact, they really haven't done that since A Bigger Bang, um, because now it's just where they don't, the even, they don't even need that. Yeah. Yeah. So I do think that there is a correlation there that New York City, which inspired some of the greatest 
70s Stones music because obviously a lot of the late 60s, early 70s music comes from different influences. But the music that inspires the, inspired the Stones in the 70s, the culture of New York City is not there anymore. Um, and maybe they just haven't found the right influence to replace it. And that's why their albums have not quite stacked up to the classics. But, you know, you could listen to a lot of uh, A Bigger Bang and Blue and Lonesome and say, hey, you know what? These are good songs or in the case of Blue and Lonesome, uh, great versions of yeah. these songs. Yeah. Um, there's certainly bands that are putting out stuff that are so in- uninspired that it's just depressing. I don't think the Stones have uh, have ever hit that level, even if they're not putting out Exile on Main Street 14. I agree. I agree. But I do think that um, the correlation you make in the in the book, as New York goes, so go the Rolling Stones. And yeah. the Disneyfication of New York is, uh, I think, apparent to both you and I. And, and, and the same may be true of the Rolling Stones. Agreed. I mean, certainly their image has has changed. I mean, there will always be jokes about Keith Richards and his drug use and Mick yeah. Jagger. The and- Rolling Bones and all of that. Yeah. 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 I loved reading about going over all the press conferences the Stones did from the Steel Wheels and the Voodoo Lounge and Bridges to Babylon because the press would ask the same six questions, <laughs> all get the six non-committal answers. Is this going to be the last tour? Well, they're not going to say no because they want people to think it's going to be the last time you see them. Yeah. And they're not going to say yes because there's going to be another tour. You know, that was the question that ever came up. How much money do you think you're going to make off this tour? How many shows are you going to play? Who's going to open? Are you going to pull out any? You know, it's the same six questions. And after every press conference uh, that would launch a tour, which they always did those press conferences in New York. I was going to ask, every one was done in New York, right? Yeah. Yes, and that's correct. You would just see these angry commentary from New York papers complaining about, yep, the stone showed up again. And yep, they didn't answer any questions of consequence. And um, you and you bought it again. Yeah. And it's, but, but it's why like putting a microphone think, in front of Trump. Come on. Why did you think it was going to be any different this time? Right. Uh, and it's interesting. They don't even do those events anymore. I mean, I guess you don't need to with the Internet. Um, the Stones can just put a video up on Twitter and Instagram that say, hey, these are the next 20 dates. Come yeah. and see us. I, actually, with this one, and I think they did this the last time as well. They just put up like posters or at the venues where they were yes. play and everybody knew, oh, shit, better get your money ready because the Stones yep. are going to tour. And that they didn't even have to say anything. Uh, nope. That's crazy. So, yeah. all right, you, you can't talk about the changing of the city over the last almost 60 years so that we've been talking about today and not bring up 9-11. You know, certainly a sickening day to watch out here in California. And while there may have been a few moments to to begin the healing after the attacks on the Twin Towers, that October 20th MSG concert for New York is very fresh in my mind. Uh, so tell us about Mick and Keith's relationship at that moment and how that helped heal the band again, uh, as well as the city. Yeah. Heading into September uh, 2001, the Stones, more specifically Richards and Jagger, were again having uh, issues with one another. Some of that stems back to the Bridges to Babylon album. There's certainly a lot of outside producer influence on that album um, that Keith Richards was not a fan of. And uh, in fact, there's there's even a, a story that I got from Life, um, Keith Richards' uh, biography, autobiography, and that I made sure to mention in my book as well of Keith Richards stealing the tapes or taking the tapes of one of his songs, taking a speedboat 
taking them up to Connecticut, where his house is, mixing them, and then taking a speedboat across the Long Island Sound in the middle of the night to bring the tapes back because him and Jagger just couldn't agree on how to mix. And this was one of Keith's vocal songs, uh, how to mix the song. And, and that was the type of place where their relationship was. And of course, right around that time, Jagger had another solo album out, uh, Goddess in the Doorway, his most recent solo album. Um, Richards was again upset that he was taking time out to record a solo album. In fact, Richards in the press is never shy about taking swipes at his uh, his longtime friend. Called the album "Dog Shit in the Doorway" as opposed to "Goddess <laughs> yes, in the Doorway," that's right. <laughs> because again, it, it was an album that featured a lot of outside producers, outside songwriters, uh, and a very, very it's a recognizable Mick Jagger album, but certainly more pop oriented, you know, than the Rolling Stones' own work, and. So Jagger and Richards were were not at a uh, at a good place when this concert got announced. The MSG concert, uh, the concert for New York City, Mick Jagger was the only Stone that was listed as participating. Um, he was supposed to appear. He was at the time gearing up to promote uh, or promoting Goddess in the Doorway, and Richards appeared alongside him unannounced. Um, and and the, sort of they came out together and they embraced in front of the crowd. And a lot of people were unaware of the fact that they had been, you know, aside from the the swipes that Richards was taking in the press, a lot of people were unaware of the fact that they, again, were, were not on speaking terms up until about uh, meeting backstage shortly before rehearsals, I believe. And I thought it was such a great moment in Stone's history, even though it's only uh, only half the band is on stage there because um, they they played two songs that I thought were extremely meaningful for the moment, opening with Salt of the Earth, which is no hit song in terms of the uh, the charts. I don't believe it. It was not a single. And yet it was a song that was so appropriate for the occasion and a song that the Stones had only played live a handful of times, uh, most notably with Axl Rose uh, during the 1989 Steel Wheels tour um, and uh, Izzy, Izzy Stradlin from from uh, uh, the uh, Guns N' Roses. So it was such a poignant uh, choice. And then, of course, going into Miss You. And, you know, uh, I think that reflected the tone of the evening of missing all, all of the lives lost during the, the horrific attacks. I just think it was it was just such a brilliant, brilliant uh, move for, for Jagger and Richards to reunite for that night. And uh, I actually opened the book focusing on that because I think it's, it's a, such an important symbol of the Stones relationship with New York City. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So why haven't the band been honored by the city that they've done so much for? I mean, come on. Mick was knighted by the queen and he cheated on his British taxes. <laughs> See, this is something that actually was one of the reasons that pushed me to write this book. Because as, as I mentioned, my, my wife's originally from Pennsylvania. And maybe about 10, 12 years ago, the Stones were playing a concert in Philadelphia and uh, the mayor of Philadelphia gave them the key to the city uh, and had this big ceremony about how the Stones have had such a long history in Philadelphia and, and mentioned Live Aid, which I thought was silly because the Stones didn't even play together at Live Aid. Uh, Jagger playing with uh, his own team. Actually, I think it was Hall and Oates. Yeah, his um, own team. <laughs> and, uh, and Richards and Wood playing with Bob Dylan in a very controversial performance for Dylan um, for his his words on, on, hey, some of the money should go to American farmers, oh. uh, but of course inspired Farm Aid. And as a New Yorker who has always appreciated the Stones and always thought they have had a special place in the history of, of New York City music, I just 
kind of shook my head and said, what do you mean, Philadelphia? The, the New York City is the stone city. Uh, Chicago, I'd even take as the stone city. You know, certainly they've recorded there. And Yeah, the, and, early, the early period, the Brian yeah. Jones period, I could see yeah. that, yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I said, but New York City it has had this deep impact on the Stones, and and uh, I'm surprised. Uh, I'm still surprised that there has not been an official sort of celebration of the Stones in New York City. Uh, you know, New York City, I guess, is is also so big and so much going on that you know Philadelphia is a much tinier, not tiny, but a much smaller city, and and I, I could see a celebration being. Uh, a, a little thing they can do to drum up some publicity for the concert. I don't think the Stones need the publicity in New York. As they said, they're playing two shows at MetLife this summer, both filled up, sold out. You can't get a ticket unless you go in StubHub and and uh, part with some of your uh, 401k. And, uh, <laughs> right, right. But still, is it de Blasio a Stones fan? You know, you'd have to ask him. I don't know much of his musical taste. And uh, speaking on behalf of some New Yorkers, he's he's not exactly <laughs> the most popular mayor in New York City history. So maybe he probably should do it because he'll probably win over some people, especially now that he's running for president. Maybe could use some uh, drum up some goodwill from uh, baby boomers and, and, and Stones fans of all ages if he would uh, give the Stones a key to the city. Yeah. Yeah. So doing all the research uh, for the book, you know, we talked about this. It's like. Every 10 years, there's uh, there's strife uh, between the Glimmer Twins. I guess most recently was after uh, Keith published uh, his autobiography, Life, which, you know, took unneeded swipes at uh, at Mick, uh, if you ask me. Uh, it's his story to tell and all, but still, uh, in a weird way, the whole is much better than the sum of its parts. Um, but what do you make of uh, Mick and Keith's relationship? I think you have to keep in mind, whenever you talk about it, is that these are two men, two two artists, who have worked together for the better part of 60 years. And I don't know of many business or artistic collaborations that have lasted that long with the same principal members contributing. I mean, we look at uh, McCartney and Lennon. I mean, they certainly could not have collaborated for 60 years together. There are very few partnerships in any artistic field that could last that. Now, when you have a relationship with someone for six years, let alone 60 years, you're going to have your ups and downs especially if you work together, spend time on the road together, especially when they were younger, spend personal time together. Uh, you're going to have moments, you know, they record together. You know, there, there are times that these men spent months of their lives together. Um, you're going to get on each other's nerves, especially when you have very different ideas on the direction of your music. I have to say, based on where they are now, Based on their reactions to each other, how you know, I, I personally don't know Jagger and Richards, but based on what I gather, because they have settled into their role as these elder statesmen of rock and roll, and they're not trying to be anything, you know, I, I see more of the problems coming out whenever Richards felt Jagger was trying to be something he isn't. And I think we're like that with any friend. If I have a close friend that is acting like, you know, a way is out of character for him. I get upset, you know, like that's not who you are. You know, that's not how you normally treat people. That's not how you normally act. I can see the, the same thing in relationships I have with other people. And I'm certainly not recording in one of the biggest uh, corporate slash rock and roll entities on the planet where there's 
millions and billions of dollars at stake. I can see why Richard says, I don't want you to record another poppy solo album when we could go and knock out a classic stones record. If you just give me, you know, a couple of weeks. So I think based on the fact that Jagger doesn't seem to be trying to branch out into solo records, he certainly, he, he put out a solo single, two songs, two or three years ago, um, or, or maybe even more recently, it was about Brexit that he put out, but really that's, that's all that's come out of the Jagger solo camp besides his, his one-off super heavy super group collaboration. I think he's very much committed to the stones for the remaining time that they keep on rolling. And I think Richards is happy about that. And we mentioned during the current tour at the second show in Chicago, Richard screwed up a song screwed up the opening of a song and the the two the two of them Jagger you could tell was unhappy you know he's a perfectionist but the two embraced and they joked about it and uh, uh, I don't think that's something that you would have seen in some of the lower points in their relationship. Agree, agree. All right, so if you had to choose pre nineteen eighty Stones or post nineteen eighty Spectacle. Yeah, uh, I got to go with pre 1980s just because I mean, my book's named after a song from some girls. You know, I, I obviously love the 60s stones, but my favorite time is that 70s, you know, uh, Mick Taylor joining in 69 and, and then running through all the way up to tattoo you. That's my favorite time of the band. So, you know, there's certainly worthy songs and great concerts that they have played over the last 30 years, but it's really that 1970s time that is the heart of my book uh, and the heart of my love for the Rolling Stones. Yeah. So who would have ever thought that uh, we would still be talking and writing books about uh, a rock and roll band that are getting close to the age of 80? <laughs> Uh, you know what? I'm happy to have done it. And a lot of people ask me, they say, how could you write an entire book about a band's relationship with a city they're not even from? And, <laughs> and I, I point out, you know, how much has been written about Bruce Springsteen in New Jersey or Billy Joel in Long Island or, you know, the Eagles in California, the Grateful Dead and San Francisco, uh, the Bay Area. And I said, you know, that doesn't interest me as much as as something like this. And this is a group of men that have had a 60 year long connection with this city that they're not even from. And I just found that fascinating. And, uh, you know, I, I hope for their sake, they do it as long as they want, as long as they can. Um, and I'm pretty sure that's the way Keith Richards wants to go out. So God bless him. All the power to him. Well, it certainly was fascinating. And again, uh, you know, you help make a point that we try to uh, on this show and in our other shows. Uh, and that is this this period of time, this uh, latter half of the 20th century. You know, this music came up uh, with these moments, these huge moments of change, this new mass media that we all swim in uh, these days. And, uh, you know, here are a bunch of guys who thought they might have a two-year, three-year career, have a 60 year career so it's pretty incredible uh and people will be writing uh, books about uh, this music and these times uh in various ways for centuries uh i would say so um i believe you are going to get to see uh the the stones on this uh this tour yeah yes rose bowl so not in new york but 
you know, I'm still seeing them. I just won't be in New York at the time they're doing the MetLife shows. Uh, that's too bad that you won't actually get to see them, uh, you know, on home turf. But still, <laughs> I'm sure it will be uh, it will be as fantastic as uh, as the early shows have showed uh, to be. And and let's face it, you know, I think Mick's got something to prove that he can make it back out of the out of the surgery, and he's not in the grave yet. Uh, so I'm pretty excited about seeing him here in a couple of months myself. Excellent. Well, Christopher McKittrick, um, you know, it's been great talking to you today. Thanks so much for being on Deeper Digs and Rock. Thank you so much for having me. What an awesome book that conflates the world's greatest rock and roll band with Gotham of the latter half of the 20th century. Talk about right up our alley here at the old RNRAP. Do go out and get Christopher's latest Can't Give It Away on 7th Avenue, The Rolling Stones, and New York City. You won't be disappointed. So, like I said at the top, (laughs) very timely. Cosmically so, because due to Mick's heart valve surgery and my missing two weeks with my own issues, uh, again, uh, go to the top of the show, this episode just happens to land a day or so after I caught the band uh, when they hit our local stadium in Santa Clara. Um, By the way, that's our New Jersey. And this being the fourth time I've seen them, here are my thoughts on the world's greatest septuagenarian band. Uh, every time I have uh, seen the aging rock and rollers, I go in with low expectations. You know, the, the first time from my 19-year-old perspective in 1981 is that they were already old men. I went to see Prince open the show, Jay Giles Rock, and uh, even the new hits of this George Thorogood guy with a retro sound. But like last night... Um, and I don't care how you slice it, uh, mid-70s is getting old. <laughs> and every other time I've seen them, this was the fourth, I walk out saying, yep, greatest rock and roll band in the world. And they proved it again, just like every other time. Without giving a full concert review, I'll just say the core four were pretty much in fine form. Charlie is as solid as ever always creating the perfect pocket while hardly breaking a sweat. Ronnie took some great tasty solos and even looked like a kid. Keith held it all down throughout the night, and Mick sounded perhaps the best I've ever heard him, both vocally and on the harp. Uh, And let me add, having Chuck Lavelle on keys, bassist Daryl Jones, Carl Denson, and Tim Rees on sax, vocalist Bernard Fowler and Sasha Allen and Matt Clifford on other keys and percussion will make just about anybody sound pretty fucking good. It is a machine. So my takeaway is, as always, I walked away muttering once again, greatest rock and roll band in the world. Well, let me know what you diggers think. And um, 
One last little rant. The only bummer of the night might be the venue. Uh, again, Santa Clara, is it's our New Jersey. This was the first time, uh, in, uh, all, all, with all deference to our New Jersey fans out there, uh, of course we kid, but this venue, <laughs> uh, this was the first time I had been to the new 49ers stadium called Levi's uh, because they apparently paid the most for the naming rights. And all I can say is that the experience was rather atrocious. I had heard about the nightmare since the place opened, and I can tell you I have to agree with all the bad word. I mean, it's a new stadium for fuck's sake, and in the heart of Silicon Valley. You'd think they would be the most modern facility in the world. Every convenience, efficiency galore, Nope. An experience like no other in giant venues. Nope. Um, I won't be going back anytime soon. That's what I'll say. Okay, that'll do it for this week. Our next show will be an interview with author Will Birch, who some might remember was the subject on the latest Rock and Roll Librarian episode where Shelley and I discussed and dissected his new book, Cruel to be Kind, The Life and Music of Nick Lowe. Will and I will dig deeper into his friend and subject of the book, Mr. Lowe. Okay, friends, lovers, and even the haters out there, keep up the rockin'. Deeper Digs in Rock, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at the RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at RNR Archaeology. As a new Western Union customer, you can enjoy a $0 transfer fee on your first international online money transfer. Send money to your loved ones back home the fast, easy, and reliable way. Visit westernunion.com or download their app today to get started. And your first transfer fee is free. Services offered by Western Union Financial Services, Inc., NMLS 906983 or Western Union International Services, LLC, NMLS 906985, FX Gain Supply.